Hey, this is Matt Dwyer, and I just want to invite you to check out themattdwyer.com. That's my website, where it's a landing spot for all things that are the podcast, like my Patreon page. For $5 a month, you could become a Patreon subscriber. You get bonus blogs, bonus content. A lot of my interviews go two hours, but I only post an hour. So there's the part two there. There's episodes in their entirety that unedited a lot of stories that you might not hear in the podcast. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber. There's also merchandise. You can buy t-shirts and a phone case. I think those are the only two things I have right now. But you can also find my social media and see the past episodes. Every episode is on there. Um, You can see a lot of my past guests. You might discover some people you didn't know were on the show and be like, holy shit, he's had Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips or holy shit, he's had Danita Sparks from L7. So go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, buy some merch. Thank you. Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is called I'm Confessing. It is from the album 89. It is by Charlie Gabriel, and it is out now on Sub Pop Records. That's right. Sub Pop, the home of grunge, put out a jazz record from an 89-year-old jazz musician who's now 90. So if that ain't fucking cool, I don't know what is. But that is goddamn cool. Um, it is a great album. I love it. I think there's something very special about it, and I'm thrilled that I get to talk to Charlie Gabriel. Also, the album is produced by Ben Jaffe. They are both Preservation Hall musicians in the great city of New Orleans. Ben joins us the last 20 minutes of the podcast to talk about the evolution of the album and how it came about, and it's a really, really great conversation. I also, if you pay attention, can tell that I'm being very nerdy and excited. I'm kind of a little dorky in this episode, because <laughs> for starters, I'm a big jazz fan. I don't have a lot of jazz on the podcast. I want to, but I'm also a huge New Orleans fan, and not just the music and the food and the culture, but the city and the people and its history. So it was, um, I don't know, man, I was just very nervous and nerdy during this conversation, and I don't want to tell you too much about Charlie's history, but he he's from New Orleans. He went left the city, played around Detroit with a bunch of giants and music, and then returned to New Orleans. But we talk about all that, so I don't want to ruin it, but I just wanted to give you a little context. And Charlie has some other albums out there. Go check them out. In the show notes are links to where you can buy this album. I highly suggest you buy it. It is really great, and this is a really great conversation. Have I said that it's great? This is also my sixth or seventh attempt at doing this intro, and I'm jacked on coffee because I've been up since 2 o'clock in the morning. If you have kids, sometimes you get up at 2 in the morning for no goddamn reason other than somebody started crying while they were still sleeping, and they didn't know they were sleeping. <laughs> but anyway, uh, just a real quick plug. My partner in life, Kelly R. Dwyer, does websites. If you need a website, she does some biggies like My Favorite Murders website, Exactly Right, Ologies. Other than podcast websites, she's also done websites for politicians, businesses, 
you name it. So if you need a website, go to kellyrdwire.com. That link is also in the show notes. And also on my Patreon, which I mentioned in the pre-show thingy, who you could watch the video of, of me, Charlie, and Ben talking, and there's extra content in there. That's pretty it's silly and fun. Like content, bonus content is. But uh, that is that. I'm going to let you get into this conversation with the great Charlie, Gabriel, and Ben Jaffe. I'm confessing that I need you, honest I do. Need you How are you, Charlie? Brian, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for your incredible album. Sub Pop sent me an early copy of it, and I, I hassled them. I was like, Charlie's got to come on. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. <laughs> but that has been your doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've listened. Uh, I've listened to some of your other albums. They're out there for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was curious what um, what attracted you to the clarinet at at your young age when you were eleven. Well, you know, uh, uh, my dad was a saxophone and a clarinetist, right? You know, so, well, in order to become a good saxophonist, you should start on the clarinet. See. Clarinet, the clarinet to teach you the saxophone. You have to take a lesson to learn the saxophone if you play the clarinet. Okay, so it wasn't like uh, you wanted to get, the, the goal was to get to the saxophone. No, well, in the, uh, let's put, put it this way. Uh, the mother instrument for one read instruments, the only one read on the, on the clarinet, is the clarinet. The clarinet is one instrument, one reed instrument, and also the saxophone one reed. So the clarinet is built in a way, the clarinet is built in a way when you play in a low register of the horn, you play like an E-flat alto. When you test the register, you play like a, a B-flat tenor. So you play in both octaves by the clarinet. So he teach you the sax. The saxophone, the same fingering is when you test the resident, the same singing on the clarinet from the bottom to the top. The fingering is the same. But on the clarinet, the low, the fingering is F and, and it's 12 tones away when you press the register. Then you'll be playing C. See? So the clarinet is really the instrument that teaches you the saxophone. Wow. And were there people in your neighborhood that you looked up to who were playing those instruments? My father. Your father. My father. My father taught me and caught my cousin Colin Ford. And he was a saxophonist and a clarinetist. He also was a drummer, but he's the one that taught me. And they had good musicians in, in, in New Orleans that I looked up to uh, besides my father. With like, for instance, uh, uh, George Lewis was a very fine, very fine clarinetist that I was fortunate to play up. along with him when I was in the Rico band. I was about 11, 12 years old. Mr. Um, Contrell, Lewis Contrell, was a wonderful clarinet player. Then he had another good clarinet player that I had a chance to listen to when I was youngster coming up, the brother Cornbridge, you know. So uh, he was another good clarinetist, you know. So uh, it was so many nice. Uh, clarinet I listen Jimmy Noon, you know, uh, they left him from New Orleans when I went away. So, uh, even uh, Cindy Boucher was a good clarinet player too, he played soprano. So, it was so much around me that uh, I kept me interested in the instrument. Yeah, I mean, New Orleans, obviously, there's just music everywhere, especially That's back great. then. Was it more so back then where it was out in the streets, or is it still like that? 
Uh, let's say that uh, it always was uh, music all around you, but the, the cast in the street nice embellishing the music. So uh, I say it's a continuation of what it was once was. Yeah, because I know I was reading about Professor Longhair recently, and he was saying in the book he was saying that this there was like calypso and all these different rhythms and that it just sort of becomes an influence on everybody and everything because there's so many different sounds at once. Well, and he said calypso, I, I think he probably trying to express the idea that habanero will be the word to you. It's habanero music, see? See, they have all the rhythm that you hear in the music, habanero, other than waltzes and front trots. Then you play habanero because so many different rhythms. That samba, they have begin, they have below, they have uh, uh, whatever. Not to go through all that. Can you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and how quickly was it that you started playing out on the street with the with the Eureka Brass Band? Eleven years old. I was eleven years old. So you picked it up at eleven, and you were playing out on. I was playing. I was playing music at eleven. Professional enough to play with the Rico Jazz Band, and my dad took me with the band. My dad played alto in the band, and he took me along to play with the band. I, I was already playing music, you know. I, uh, 11, 12 years old. I, then, uh, let's see. Let me see how. I, even if I didn't know all the songs and things the band were playing, my dad would have me there playing. I learned. I learned. I learned. With along a, a lot from the other musicians as well, I learned from my father. Was that very common for children at that at that time to be? I think I think I think if you was from a musical family, it would be common. If if, if you and then I'm from a musical family, my father and my grandfather, they, they all was musicians. Even my mother played, and my, all my father brothers played. My father had my, my father brother with Uncle Clarence and Uncle Percy. They played music. They one played the banjo, one played, he played the piano. Uncle Percy played the bass, and his sister on our brother, she played piano, and then my his other sister. Uh, Cecile played piano too, and she taught piano and played organ too. So it was just, for me, it was very easy to learn a lot about the music and be able to get involved in the music because it was around me each and every day. Yeah, that's crazy. Because is it sort of expected of someone to become a musician in that environment? Because for me as a kid, I wanted to play trumpet. My dad was like, nope. <laughs> well, that's a good to show you. I want to play trumpet too. But I had three brothers playing trumpet. My brother Martin was playing trumpet. My brother Uncle was playing trumpet. And my brother Lenny was playing trumpet. So my dad was said to, to my brother Lenny, said, you can't play trumpet. No, too many of you guys playing trumpet. There's only one gig. <laughs> so you had to play something different. You told my brother Lenny, he had to play trombone. See, and at the same time, Clarence Ford, who was my first cousin, my dad taught him at the same time he taught me. So Clarence Ford would play the clarinet, or either the alto, and I played the tenor or the clarinet, you know. So my dad was looking out to keep it, the family band together, see. And uh, Uncle Clarence played piano, so we do a lot of a lot of rehearsal on Sunday at my home with my father. On Sunday, we played nothing but hymns. On Sunday, we were teaching us how to play hymns and things. So I imagine if you were in, into a musical family, you automatically would uh, become a musician. 
unless you had something that was much more greater interest to you. And I don't think that music uh, is any more greater than anything else. <laughs> yeah, we play a lot of music around here. I have two daughters, and I just can't imagine like that to have it so encouraged and be such a part of your life since day one. It's like that's good for the spirit. That's good for like your vitality in life. Yes, it does. It's a whole lot. It's a part of what, who makes you who you are. Yeah. The breath, the breath that you use to blow into the engine, the continuation of your lungs. Yeah. My parents yeah. weren't into music, and I found it on my own listening to Chicago radio, but it's like, and it, mm. I can't play, but it's just an endless joy for me. Yeah. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Did and did you just know, like at that young of an age, that this is my life? This is gonna be my life. Uh, I I would assume when I was learning how to play and and working playing with my father and, and associating with other musicians, I I think that was my destination because I loved it so much. You know, I, I really do believe so. And the, with the Eureka Brass Band, I don't know how many people know. Would like would you just go out in the streets and play? I know there's also like parades. No, no it didn't work that way. The Eureka Brass Band had all these top jazz musicians here in New Orleans. They had uh, Kid Shot with his real name, with a guy Madison T. Bar Rene, was the leader of the Rico Jazz Band, and you you had Jim Robinson in the band. I'm, but I'm a kid, you know, so I, I'm under such good musician there in front of me so much to keep my interest in order to become a musician, which I am today. Man, to be, and to be playing with people that great at such a young yeah. age, it just brings you up, yeah. and. And they treated you just the same. Like as I, I was their son. Wow. Yeah, my dad, see, uh, Kid Howard, Kid Clayton, and uh, Guy Madison, you guys, they called my father Manny. They called my daddy Manny. His name was Martin. They said, Manny, we got a job for you tonight. He said, no, no, no. I'm already booked. I can't take it. But you can take my kid. <laughs> <laughs> How great. Yeah. And did your family move to Detroit or was that a decision you decided to make to go on to Detroit? Uh, my family moved to Detroit. My oldest brothers, my older brother Martin and my older brother August, they were young musicians too, but they were they was married and they had a wife. You know, they were married. And they decided to uh, go to California with, uh, to get out of the, give my mother a new lifestyle in, in California. But they were young, like, they were like 19 and 20 years old. They, they, they said they're going to go to California, but they were young, young, young couples with their girlfriend or wife, whatever it was. And they broke down in Detroit. Wow. See, they went. They was fighting. They broke down in Detroit, and they had to get the car fixed. So they thought working at the factory, not the far we got. That's so why going to California. <laughs> wow! Yeah. And kind yeah. of was was that right as well as when the Detroit music scene was starting to 
take off? Or I mean, Detroit always had a vibrant oh, music scene. That before, that before the music scene, Detroit took off, as you call it, what you know about now, they call it Motown, you know, Motown music. Well, that was before all of that. Motown music came, came up after uh, 48, because I was in Detroit when, when we, we started doing Motown music, you know? Yeah, but and but Detroit was already a vibrant music scene before Motown. I just think a lot of people think of yeah, Motown. Yeah, Detroit was yeah, but Detroit was already established in in the in the in the music as far as having musicians playing and they're playing American form of music. I don't want to call it jazz. I don't want to call it funk. I don't want to call that. But they were playing whatever was taking place at that time, you know. And uh, later on. They thought recording using Detroit, like then it became Motown. They thought producing artists and everything in Detroit, and that high then become Motown music. You know. Yeah. How did you start playing in Detroit? Did you just go seek out? Uh, I mean, how would one start? <laughs> how did I start playing in Detroit? Yeah. Well, I was already a seasoned musician when I got to Detroit. See, I went to Detroit in 1948. And born in 1932. So I was pretty well seen, you know. So I just thought meeting a musician in the city of Detroit and associating with them. And uh, like um, Joe Hunter, who was Motown first band, who was a member of my uncle band, Uncle Percy, he was playing piano with Uncle Percy. Social association, uh, you know, we've grown around you. Uh, got me up into Motown thing, you know. Yeah, and what? But they kept New Orleans music. No, they, what they really did, what my uncle, my dad, and my uncle person did, they brought New Orleans music to Detroit. And my dad used to, uh, Tom Saunders was trying to play in Detroit. He got a, 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 a nephew down here named Tom Saunders. He used to go up to uh, to a uh, the hotel up there on, uh, I can't think of the name, but anyway, he to go down and rehearse those guys. Tom Sander had a suicide sit band. Suicide sit, I can't pronounce it right. And my dad would go up there and, and, and show them the different things about New Orleans music. Because New Orleans music, if you play it, they got a different uh, form they got in. They really like, have a verse, they have a melody, and they have an interlude. I don't even know what interlude is. They have an interlude, then they go back to the melody and go out. So he was teaching those guys in that area the form of the music and the music that we were playing down here. And and it was sort of uh, new to, new to them, or, or it was new to them. If they wanted to know, learn how to play New Orleans music, they were playing the music that they were playing, but they wasn't playing New Orleans because New Orleans music have different form. Like I said, they got a, a voice, a melody, and an interlude. Any loser like a voice, but a different um, melodic line. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they go back. To, then they go back to the melody and take the song out. Those things they have to have someone that know about it in order to give them some insight on how to to play it. And what, what jazz were they? Was it more of like a bebop scene going? Because I remember no, 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 bebop came in. Bebop came in real late. See. Uh, I, I recall when I thought knowing about bebop and learning what they were doing, uh, 
I'll tell you a story. In, in, uh, I'll tell you for a second. Uh, uh, ASCAP and BMI were uh, charging the club owner money for the music that they were, be, that they were playing, you know, the, this thing that we're playing. And in order to, uh, not to pay, pay that ASCAP and BMI, the musician will play a different melody on an old song. Like, for instance, I would say, you were doing, uh, uh, let's say, George Brown. Instead of playing that melody, so the, the, the charger on the tax on it, they play. That So they were just doing that to skate from. Play, paying the them keep, to? <laughs> yeah, they were doing that keep from the club on had to pay taxes on <laughs> on the song. Like well that that's how Bebop come in, cause it, like, uh, let's say you're doing Honey Sucker Road. The melody on Honey Sucker Road will be Bebooda, Bidu Bada, Bebudu Dada Nada, a instead of playing that for you had to pay taxes and they play but so you had to listen to the radio, see what they're doing. You say, Oh, that that came on a sucker road. Understand? And they want to do a uh, 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 roll from ba 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 Melatonin. That's Roseville. Wow. They changed the, the, the different line on the original tune. That's all I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. We created another song that became popular and then we go into another area of this music. Did, did you feel like music became a, more open to you when you moved to Detroit? Like different influences? Uh, I think that. Uh, it didn't come up no open to me, because uh, I always knew the old song. Well, it did in the sense of the word. And the only way I, I knew what they were playing is to know the old song. I could sit down by the radio and put my ear to the radio as I hear the, the new song being played. And be little book, be little That's Rose Rome. You know, you know what I'm saying? You do your follow me. If you don't, I, I try to explain a little better. Like, for instance, Rosetta, pipi bada, pipi bada, boo bada, bada, That's the original song, Rosetta. Charlie Paul came up with, be do ba ba, be do ba ba ba, ba da ba da ba di da ba. That is Rosetta, but they call it Yardbird Sweet. Wow, I didn't know that about Yardbird Sweet. I know yeah, that... Yardbird Sweet is Charlie Parker. It built on Rosetta. Rosetta, boom, ba, my Rosetta, da, 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 it's the same song. Like, for instance, 
Like facing uh honey sucker roll. Be do go da, be do go da, be do to da da pa, but did it la da pa. Okay, that wrote uh uh honey sucker roll, that's what I'm then on a sucker roll, you know. When Charlie Parker came, because there's so much legend around Charlie Parker, was was it as mind-blowing as everyone says these Yes, yes. Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker and Desiree Lester and Monk, they changed a lot of stuff in the music. Uh, they took the old song that we were playing here in New Orleans and put a different melody on the top of it. And so happened to a different melody they played on top of uh, uh, caught on to the people that were listening to that type of music and then keep on in the revolution. They kept on going with it, you know. How did that and make... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... Go ahead. Oh, I was just curious how musicians responded when they first heard Charlie Parker. Was it... I say, I'll put it to you this way. Some musicians thought the stuttering in the music and listening to the music, and like myself, I listened to the, the song and related and related to uh, the song that I knew, like that how I knew what they were playing before I didn't know what they were playing. You know, but by me knowing Honey Sucker Roll, I'll I, I, I be able to hear. Honey Sucker Roll, that's Honey Sucker Roll, and Charlie Parker put. Now you are you following me or I'm I'm talking too much about my... <laughs> I mean I don't have as as a great of a grasp it as as you do, but I know what you're saying for sure. And that's all as long as you know what I'm saying. You don't have to be a musician to know you know what I'm saying. Yeah. That's the only thing. Yeah. You know? Because I know, like, I read that Cab Calloway was, didn't, wasn't on board with Bebop, and he, so was there, like, a lot of people who were also resistant to it at that time? Well, Cab Calloway had a different thing. He had, he had the big band. He had uh, one of our great, uh, Danny Barker was in that band. Danny Barker played the guitar. And also, J.C. Hurd was Cab Calloway drummer. Both of those guys. I played with I played with J.C. Hurd and J.C. Hurd band. I played with Danny Barker many times here in New Orleans. Uh, I, I I I don't know how to say whether he liked it personally or why he didn't want to change and, and and promote something that he didn't feel comfortable with. You know, right? That's that's what I think. But he got he got on board before the, before he got out of here. And you played with Lionel Hampton as well. You played with yes. You played with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was fortunate. Yeah, I was fortunate to play with Lionel Hampton. With Charlie Mingus in the band at the time. You know Charlie Mingus. Yeah. No, I mean I love Charlie Mingus. Yeah. Well, he was in Lionel, he was in Lionel Hampton band at the time. I had a chance to play along with him. I wasn't a member of Lionel Hampton band. I had a chance to play with the band. Then Fat Novell 
within the band. You're calling a sweet girl or whatever. He was in the band. Charlemagne was in that band. And uh, I had a chance to play along with them. That was, I'm, 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 at that time, I'm about 17 years old. And was Mingus wasn't as n- known as Mingus is today when he was playing with Lionel mm-hmm. Hampton? No, he wasn't. He had to have, he's, what he is today, Mingus uh, formed his own band. And, and he left Lionel Hampton band and got his own band and he started creating stuff that he wanted to sell to the universe. <laughs> he did pretty well with that, too. <laughs> Didn't he do it? Didn't he do it? <laughs> he had his own label there for a while, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How was was Mingus as intensive a fellow as one would think? Because he seems like a very... He was a very... Mingus was a wonderful person. Yeah, I had a chance to be in his company with him with one wonderful person. Uh... I don't know. No, I've been there. I know J.C. Hood. Uh, no, Milk Hinton, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm sorry. Milk Hinton. Uh, the bass player, and he was J.C. Hood's brother-in-law. He married J.C. Hood, uh, J.C. Hood's sister. J.C. Hood was a drummer in Cab Calloway band. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know so uh, it's just around and around. You did know. you did you know Phil Renlin at all? I just well, I sure I know Phil Phil Renlin trombonist. Yeah, Phil, yeah. I first met Phil Renlin. I had Phil Renlin in my band. Oh really? Uh, Phil did my podcast yeah. as well. I've 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 know Phil a little bit through mutual friends. Well, you talk to yeah. We'll talk to Phil Renlin. Uh, yeah, he was working with me before we went out there to California. To Los Angeles, uh, it's a wonderful trombonist, Phil. Yeah, because did you do a lot of session work with him? Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't. We weren't doing no session work at that time. We were just playing gigs. I didn't. I didn't do no session work with him. I saw him missionary about three or four years ago. We were out in Los Angeles. Yeah, he played with us. Yeah, he played with us with the preservation band. Oh wow, man! I wish you was sat in with us. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I met him through Wayne Kramer and because uh, we worked, did some charity events together. Uh-huh. Well, that's great. When you see him again, tell him I say hi. I know. I hope he, he was a little ill for a while. I was, actually was thinking about him yesterday because I need to follow up and see how he's been. Uh-huh. So how did How did this album come together that you did with Sub Pop? Because it's... It's a that's it's a untraditional blend of uh, music for sub pop to do, but I'm which made me love sub pop all the more for doing something like I this. Would, I think I will blame Benji Jaffe for that. <laughs> 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 I have to blame him for that. <laughs> yeah. All right, Ben. How I, was, I was just having. A, I was actually uh, having a conversation with <clears throat> someone about that. Because it's it's been on my mind. I mean, it's not lost on me uh, that you know Charlie's first major record label, you know, solo project is coming out on a on Sub Pop, you know. And I mean, for me, you know, Sub Pop defined you know a whole you know create. I don't know if I would say created, but was 
you know, a, a an important piece of a a cultural movement. And when I say cultural movement, um, I you know you need to have people like Sub Pop who are you know part of the movement, you know, and they're very much, you know, when I got to know them, you know, I knew instinctively that they had to be cut from the same cloth as me, you know, and it's not, 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 not musically necessarily, or, you know, and, but, but people who, who care about the same things and care about, you know, care about the community of music, not just the music, but care about the people and care about the musicians and the, the, the places and the spaces, you know, a record to a record label where music is being made is important. You know, is it being made in a garage? Is it a theater? Is it a, you know, a concert hall? Is it out on the street for them? When we became, when we started becoming closer with them, and I've always said this myself, you know, that punk rock is really, it's not a style as much as it is a spirit of yeah. being. And to me, you know, that is rock and roll, you know, that is Fats Domino. That's Professor Longhair. There's like that idea of, of, you know, shaking it up, you know, making people feel something. Um, and that, that to me is New Orleans music, you know, from the beginning. I mean, I've always said that, that Louis Armstrong, Buddy Bolden, I mean, what they were doing, yeah, punk rock is a label, but what they were doing was trying to, to get people's attention and getting them to, to respond to something and just trying to do something outside of, of a, you know, a category. Uh, outside the record form of the music. Yeah. So that, that, that's, why this, yeah, that's why it makes yeah. sense to me because I, I, it's exactly what I would expect Sub Pop to do. Is, exactly you know, is not to, is not just to say, Oh, we're just going to keep putting out records that sound like, you know, this, and they never have done that. They've always, you know, you look at the, 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 the breadth of the artists on that label and it's, 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 it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. When you, when it's put into that perspective, it makes total sense. I think if people are, you know, when they first hear it, they're like, what? I was thrilled when I saw it. I was like, yes, this, I was, I, and I was like, I have to get these guys on. <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a avid lover of new Orleans music and jazz. And so for, and I don't have enough of that on the show. So that's been something I've been wanting to do. Yeah. Uh, so when did you, did you two start collaborating together? Like how, how did that come? I know you've been playing together for a long time. Cause I've seen you. Yeah. Um, play chess well, together and talk <laughs> on, on the YouTubes. <laughs> well, uh, what made me uh, come back home is was because of Katrina. And then after I came back home, I got involved with Benji and we would get together and we were playing banjo at that time. And this pretty different thing that we want to play, not trying to promote nothing or anything like that, but just to have a good time together. So you go through the repertoire of the songs and things that the musician had played here, New Orleans, and Louis Armstrong, <laughs> and all the, all, the, all the musician, you know, go through the, 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 the different songs that we played, and we just have a great time. That's what, that's, that's what it was all about. I mean, it was, you know, for me, it's uh, getting to know Charlie intimately over the last, you know, 15 years. Uh, he was the one that has always encouraged me 
to um, to write music to to um, you know Dalton and also play the bass because you were playing that, too. That's right. He got me back playing the bass. <laughs> uh, I, I lost my bass in Katrina and picked up the tuba because that's what I was able to get my hands on first. And when Charlie came into the band, he, he, I don't know where we were, we were somewhere and I was, I, they had a bass there and I picked it up and started, I hadn't played for a while yeah. and I played it. I was a little rusty, but Charlie said, man, you know, you, you got to get back on the bass, yeah. you know? And it's just like, it's like these little things, like in that little moment where it's like, you know, get back on the bass mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the whole trajectory of your life changes That's significantly, right. you know? Are, are you a native of New Orleans, Ben? Yeah, I was I was born here. My parents are not from here. My parents are from Pennsylvania originally. And they came down here in '61. That's when they uh, first got involved with this uh, with what would become Preservation Hall. Um, and my dad, my dad, uh, my dad brought my mom here. He had come first. He had a fraternity brother from from New Orleans, and went to school with him up in Philadelphia. And uh, you know, my dad played music. He played tuba. And was very fond of New Orleans jazz. I mean, if you ever look at my dad's record collection, it's all, you know, it's all King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Eureka Brass Band, Tuxedo Brass Band, Sweet Emma Barrett, Billy and Dee Dee Pierce. That I mean, it's all the all the people that became yeah Preservation Hall were you know that was his record collection. So when they were like in their teens and twenties, they were making this music that was you know changing the course of history. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, here they are touching somebody thousands of miles away in you know in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. You know, some kid, you know, from immigrant parents who's hearing this music and just, you know, is like having their mind, you know, just twisted. You know. How how bad was the situation when you lost your your base? And I, because I can't imagine, like that's, and how attached were you to the base? It must have been that specific. Base I mean, anyway. very. You know, um, Charlie can tell you this too. You know, you you play your instrument so much. You spend so much time on your instrument, practicing, playing. You know, even when we're not on tour, Charlie, Charlie and I would be playing at Preservation Hall three, four, five nights a week. Or we'd be getting together here at the yeah. studio every day. So you're 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 playing yeah, hours a day on your instrument. I mean, this is your 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 craft, and uh, I mean, it's to the point where you don't even have to look. I mean, it's actually the instrument that there's indentions on the instrument from you putting your finger in certain places so many times. You know, you can actually feel if there's a. a a micro change in your instrument, you can actually feel it. I've, I've, I've actually, you know, told people, I was like, no, something's wrong with it. They're like, there's nothing wrong with your bass. I'm like, no, nah, there's something like I could, and, and inevitably you'll find like, I see Charlie with his mouthpiece, you find like this, just this little thing that only you can feel, yeah. you know? Right. That's right. And, um, so yeah, losing my instrument, you know, I wasn't the only one. I mean, thousands of musicians in new Orleans lost everything. And, um, for, you know, I may have never ever really returned to playing the tuba if it hadn't been for Katrina. And uh, I may not have ever returned to playing bass if it had not been for Charlie Gabriel. So it, it's... But Ben you know, plays plus, a lot of instruments. He plays also, he plays banjo, you know, and ukulele. See, he plays those instruments too. So it, uh, uh, bass is really an extension of what he is. 
you know, he feel he feel more comfortable with it, and that's the foundation of the music. Yeah, the base, the foundation of it. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, you know, losing your instrument. I mean, it's uh, it's it would it's like losing a work of art. Uh, that someone you know made or just um, you know something that that has meaning to you. I mean, it's it's not about the dollar value. It's it's mm-hmm. just something that you you grow to appreciate and have in your life. And um, you know, it, it, it's sort of the equivalent of it is is almost like you know Katrina was like a fire that wiped out our whole city. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another way of putting it is that uh, it makes you human. <laughs> playing music and instrument, they make you human to teach it and to become a part of it. Yeah, to bring out all your your emotion. You know, all that comes out in your playing. You know, you express who you are more through your instrument. You know, yeah. make you human. Make you, make you very sensitive to a lot of stuff in the music. How many years yeah. between you losing your bass and picking it up? The bass, because Charlie told you, how many years was that? Man, that was probably about three, maybe four years, because I lost my bass. Let's say I was two thousand five, and then yeah, two thousand five. I probably really didn't get back on the bass until two thousand nine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it was just an emotional. It was, uh, it was something that I had to get over and work through emotionally, you know, because the uh, the loss of that instrument represented something to me that I hadn't really dealt with, you know, emotionally. And uh, when Charlie said, "Hey, you need to get back on the bass," yeah. when you know, look, uh, you know, so sometimes you need. The bass is the foundation of, of, of the card. So uh, uh, playing the guitar is the, playing the banjo. Then you have to use the banjo. You played the banjo and, and the guitar and all that. So we thought of playing the bass that we just thought during different types of music. But it's also like for me, like you know, I'm like, oh, you know, sometimes you just you gotta you're, you you gotta get over these things in life, you know, or it's just gonna always hold you back. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as easy as, hey, just get back to it. Let's go. Right. And uh, and I'm reminded of, of like you know something um, Edge from you two told me after Katrina is uh, that they that he had a saying like that they would always say when he was growing up. Uh, in Ireland, it was like, get up out of that, you know? And that kind of means like, Hey, sometimes you just gotta, you gotta like, you gotta dig yourself out of this hole and you just gotta come on, you know? And, and, uh, that's kind of what that, that meant to me when he was like, Hey, you gotta get back on the base. It was like, Hey, come on, we gotta get up out of this hole and just get back to it. You know? When did you consciously start working on the album and, and realize that you were like, all right, we're going to make this album. (laughs) Well, we didn't even, I mean, uh, we didn't even know really that it was an album that we were making. Really, it was what it was, was during COVID, Charlie would come here. We're at my, we're at my studio now. And there's right behind me, there's a, a deck, like an outdoor deck. And we would sit outside and play chess and have coffee and talk. And, um, and we were doing it so often, Charlie would bring his clarinet or saxophone and I would have my bass and Josh Starkman would come on and would come sit with us on guitar and we, 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 we started, we created a pod so that we were, you know, living in that, that, you know, cause it was still at this, you know, the, that moment where we were all very 
concerned and kind of had like you know fearful of of, of, of you know to keep the music alive and just had to keep, keep it alive, it, keep it know? alive and put it out to the universe so they can enjoy it. And and that's when I I started thinking like oh man let's let's start documenting this for no other reason. There wasn't any purpose in my mind, but what I was experiencing was what Charlie does all the time. And he does it so effortlessly. And it happens so often to us that we for, we're not even aware of the, the magic of it. Yeah. Because he'll bring his clarinet backstage mm-hmm. and he'll come to Preservation Hall and he'll pull everybody around the piano and he'll say, play this, mm-hmm. boom. And next thing you know, we're playing a song that he knew from his childhood and he's sharing it with us because it's been on his mind. Something, something triggered a thought and a memory and now he's sharing it. And I'm thinking, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, man, yeah. sometimes the most beautiful music, we, the audience never even gets to hear it <laughs> because it's just, it's like, it's something really precious and beautiful. It's kind of like, it's, it's almost like that Beatles documentary that just came out where you get to see something that only this handful of people ever get to witness. And that's what this album became was this very intimate um, snapshot of, of, of this musical conversation that happens amongst musicians when we're making music for ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's great. And how that's, I mean, and I've been around friends who are musicians where I've seen those moments and I'm just like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm witnessing. <laughs> like, it's like, there's nothing like it in the world. And it's great that, that you were able to document that. Yeah. How did you come about with Charlie singing? And I know you you have sang in the past, Charlie. I just I love those songs very much. I love the way you sing. <laughs> well, Charlie, Charlie, I, Charlie is one of my favorite singers of all time. Uh, he he sings. I, I don't know if he sings like he plays or he plays like he sings. I play like I sing. You, you play like you sing. Okay. <laughs> see, uh, because see, uh, singing. Uh, uh, it's melodic. It's all of who you are. You express all the things that you have when you're singing, you know. So when I play my horn, I, I mimic. I don't do it on purpose. You understand? To mimic myself. But when you play your horn, you play your horn because you're singing in your horn. Mm. It's a storytelling. Yeah, you're singing in your He's horn. He's one of the best storytellers I know. I mean, you've lived and seen as much as Charlie has the stories are amazing and each one of these songs had a story and uh when i hear charlie sing a lot of times these are we would pull out songs and charlie would would sing along with them and i would go find the lyrics and we would just you know record i mean one one thing one thing we definitely had during covid was a lot of time you know what i mean and that's one thing that we normally don't have you know in fact we even came up with a we even came up with a little thing. Charlie always would show up. I say, Charlie, how you doing? He said, I got more time than money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, well, ain't that the truth, man? Because I mean, everything was shut down, so all we had was each other and this the, the healing of, of this yeah. music and the, this yeah. you know conversation that we would have, you know. And then we rejuvenate one another. He 
be feeling good and he would juvenate me and make me think of something and I'd play something and juvenate him and he would say, hey man, how about doing such and such? That's how that goes. This yeah. the relationship and the, uh, to the point that we all we are one in music. When he opened his mouth and started talking, I become a part of what he's talking about. And if I open my mouth and cut off, he become a part of what I'm talking about because it's all music. When you picked these songs for the album, was there sort of an unspoken or like a theme or anything that sort of strung it together for you on an internal level or a subconscious level, you think? Well, I'll tell you, we really what it was, uh, and I could say it wasn't just one, there wasn't just one reason these songs were selected. Uh, the Charlie would there would be there would a week would go by and we would just work on one song you know we would learn it we would internalize it we would find the right arrangement we would find the right key we might we might we might find the right we had to find the right tempo uh a lot of times i mean like i said it was just about documenting a moment in time for me it was it was you know, and, and I never, I, I never, we never approached it as if we were making an album. What what happened was, you know, after about, you know, three months or six months of this, we, you know, I realized that we had an incredible body of work. And, uh, you know, these are the songs that are on this album, but there's, you know, dozens and dozens of other songs that we recorded. I mean, we want, I, I really wanted to, to document, you know, all of the the, so, the jazz, the, the standards that, that Charlie played growing up, and each one of these songs had a very important connection to him throughout his life. You know, like um, Stardust, for example, was a song Charlie heard as a child. Uh, there was a gentleman named Louis Cottrell who played clarinet with the Sydney Desmond Band. And the Sydney, the Sydney Desmond Band was the, the the equivalent of the Duke Ellington Orchestra of New Orleans. Yeah. They were always proper dressed. They read charts. It was a big band, a yeah. New Orleans-style big band. And this gentleman, Louis Cottrell, what one of his features was yeah. Stardust. Stardust. He played outdoor in the band, but he did a Stardust on clarinet. You know? And the How old were you, Charlie, when you heard that? Why not? About 14 or 15 Maybe sixteen years old. What? 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 what you, had it, could you even do? You even remember the, the the feeling of hearing that sound? With that? What well, it, I I already heard him. I, I have heard him play many times alto. My dad took me to hear this in the dance room, and I always heard him play. But this particular time, he played Stardust on the clarinet, and just blew me away. <laughs> this blue, I had never heard nothing like it before. The Ellington Band was very popular at that time, too, you know, and with Johnny Heise and all them great musicians out of Duke Band. But Sydney Dadfield Band was compared to the Duke Ellington Band here in New Orleans. Mm. That's how good that band was. So each one of these songs, Charlie had a story about that was something from his his childhood or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. some connection to the material, you know, there, there, there are a couple of originals that Charlie and I wrote together on there. Um, yellow moon and 
kind of the darker it gets our originals mm-hmm. and those those songs were usually written when charlie and i were on the road touring yeah. and like charlie said i would you know either he would have an idea or i would have an idea when i would go over to his room and we would be playing chess and i'd pull out my either my banjo or we used to travel with a little keyboard and i would we would play and charlie would you know he would listen to it and as you're listening to something you start, you just start, come back you, start you. you start hearing melodies, you start hearing harmonies and, and everything. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful gift to have. It's a blessing to be able to, uh, to hear, to, to think in music, to hear, to, to hear in sound. I mean, to think in sound. Are, do you have a plan to, do a follow up with all this other stuff that you recorded that <laughs> man I'll tell you can yeah, I, I mean, can I Venmo I, I, you I, some I money mean, <laughs> I mean we the, the, right, yeah more I mean, time than money more time than money yeah. more time than money feeling kind of funny since I'm honey walked out on me more time than money on my hands Oh, yeah, we, I mean, that you know, this is, I think part of this story is, you know, this, this beautiful connection of being 89 years old, recording this project during COVID, releasing this project to the world. It's, it's such an uplifting story, yeah. and there's so much more to tell. You know, it's, it's, it's all there. And, of course, I mean, you know, we're, they're, they're, we just, you know, we, we're still recording. I mean, we were in here last week. You know, still recording songs because I mean that's that's what we're able to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was here the other day and uh, Benja had uh, he at the studio right now had something playing on the box and uh, I said Ben, when did we do that? He said we did it eight years ago. <laughs> 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 yeah. So you know, has yeah, anyone yeah. filmed any part of this? Like, it feels like it should be a movie. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, it's so epic. Know, it, yeah, we've been documenting parts of it. You know, um, I mean, you know, it, it's almost like uh, like that movie with uh, Jim Carrey, where it's like you know, like there's cameras on you the whole time. This is something that actually, like, us sitting here right now, it's just we would be here with or without, you know, you, you know, <laughs> we would be sitting right here, um, having this conversation. In fact, it's, it's about time for our lunch mm-hmm. and it's always been busy all day. So I gotta, I gotta, I, I gotta get him a, a plate of lunch pretty soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this is, it's, it's, it, it felt, this felt like the, the moment for those songs and yeah, the, the, the way that they fit together, it's the perfect, um, introduction, you know, to, to Charlie and to this, this, you know, a kind of a, uh, it's going to be a new sound for some people and it's been playing on radio stations or, you know, it's playing on a bunch of rock and roll stations, uh, around the country. And, uh, yeah, I've been getting text messages. People have been hearing it in Minneapolis and Philadelphia, you know, on World Cafe or, you know, uh, up, up in Seattle, wherever. And it, 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 it's, a, it's a beautiful moment. 
That's incredible. I yeah. I envy what you're going to have for lunch because I'm in Los Angeles and you're there and I want to eat what you're having. <laughs> <laughs> I make attempts at, at Tefei and gumbo, but I know it's not the same. I've been well, there. Well, next time you're down in New Orleans, we have to, yeah. be happy to prepare something for you. Oh, I would be honored. And I, Ben, thank you so much for jumping in. It's been, I can't thank you enough. Like It's been such an honor and a thrill so thank you both very, very much. Thank you for having Absolutely. us. I'm confessing that I need you, honest I do. Need you every moment. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with The Wire. Please become a Patreon subscriber. If you like, also subscribe to the show on your iTunes or what have you not and tell your friends about the show that would mean a lot to me as well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the com or conversations with Dwyer at the Instagram and you could learn more about the show buy merch and all those great things thank you very much for listening